a strong tower. How we doing, family? It's a little chilly in here. I know. The, the heater is struggling, but we will make it. In the name of Jesus, we will make it. It's good to be with you all. I uh, missed you all last week and thankful to uh, Brian who stepped in to preach for me as I was still in quarantine from COVID and you can probably hear some of that still uh, lingering for me. So if you can pray for me, that'd be wonderful. Um, but we will, we will do our best as we're working through this together. Um, but it's good to be with you this morning. If you want to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Again, if you're a guest here, we want to welcome you to Strong Tower. We're glad that you could be with us today. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're glad you could join us. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning. 1 through 6, Ephesians chapter 1. When you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the wonder of church, the wonder of church. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you uh, for your word this morning as we dive in to hear what you would say to us by the power of your spirit. We pray you would help us to listen, help us to hear what you are saying to us in the scriptures, that we might know your voice and, and hear what you have to say that would transform our lives. God, we come to your word knowing that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces into our hearts, and we pray you would do that today. Do surgery on us to make us whole, to make us healthy, to love you more with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It was 1994, and it was a 6.7 magnitude earthquake that shook the streets of Los Angeles. And many people who had lived there their whole life, they, they were kind of used to earthquakes, and so they didn't think much of it. They, they woke up in the middle of the night, and, and they may have thought, okay, what, what was that? And maybe a little bit shocked, but they went right back to bed and didn't think much of it. But then other folks, they, they went outside, and they're like, you know, I got to figure out what's going on, because the power went out, and, and you walk outside, and it looks dark and eerie. I mean, you walk outside, and, and there's no lights, no street lights, no buildings lit up, no cars driving down the road. It was completely pitch black. And people were starting to feel a little uneasy and anxious because they looked up into the sky and they saw in the sky all kinds of things they hadn't seen before. They saw stars and they saw planets and they saw uh, you know, maybe a satellite or two. And, and then they got a little nervous because they saw this eerie-looking kind of silvery cloud across the sky. 
And people got so worried, they didn't know what it was, they didn't know what had happened, they, they weren't really sure, so the, the 911 call center started getting these floods of calls. People were calling about this mysterious silver cloud in the sky. And it turns out it was the Milky Way. They had lived in L.A. their whole life and had never seen the stars, let alone the Milky Way. And they panicked because there was so much pollution in the sky there were, uh, from the light that you couldn't see, right? The, the city is just lit up 24-7. And then when all the power went out, now they could see. And the Milky Way freaked them out. And their first response was, what is it? What, what is that? I mean, have you ever had that experience where, where you saw something or you came into contact with something that, that you had never seen before, never experienced before, and, and it almost terrifies you a little bit, makes you a little bit anxious, and, and your first response is, what, what is that? That can happen in the church. It can happen in the church because sometimes things are so polluted in the church, when, when you actually step back and you can see past the pollution, you, you start to ask, what, what really is that? I mean, it could be all kinds of pollution, right? In the church, there could be pollution that, that maybe it's, it's been polluted by business models. The churches you've been a part of, they're, they're just all about the consumer experience. You show up and you want to have the best experience possible. What are they going to do for my kids? What kind of music do they have? What kind of small groups do they have? Is this really meeting my needs? Am I, am I being fed here? That's the favorite Christian one. Right? It's, it's this business model of, of you provide services to me as the church and I receive and consume those products, this product called Jesus. Or maybe for you, it's, it's more like a, a corruption of therapy. And, and, and the church is just your therapy group. It's where you go to feel good about yourself. It's where you go to, to deal with your past failures and, and, and deal with your fears in the future. And, and so it's really just meeting my needs in, in a therapeutic way. It makes me feel good. That's what church is about. Or maybe for others, it's, it's been polluted by just corruption in the leadership. Church, in your mind, is, is the place where leaders ask for money and, and people are corrupt behind the scenes and people have hurt you in the past. And, and let me tell you, church hurt is real. There is a lot of things that people have endured. It's polluted. Right? Have you ever stepped back from the church and asked, what, what really is the church? Why, why do we do this thing on Sundays? What, why are we a people that are called a church? What, what is it? I think because of all the, the trouble and all the things we've walked through, it's been hard to kind of give a sense of what the church really is. But over the last two years, I think it's a question that many folks have been asking as our world has been shaken by an earthquake called the pandemic. And it's been shaking things up and making us ask questions that maybe we've never asked before. Questions about what is the church? And my hope is that as you ask those questions and as you wrestle with your own issues that you've experienced in the church, my hope is that out of that would rise this wonder for what the church really is who she really is. Because it's incredible to see as you back up and you see what, what she could be despite all the pollution. And sometimes the first response 
of this wonder is the question, what is it? Right? It might make you a little bit anxious. It might make you a little bit nervous. And you just have to step out and say, what, what actually is the church? This is what we're going to look at this morning as we begin this new series in Ephesians. And if you're new to the Bible, Ephesians is a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter uh, to a church that he had actually started years before. He had started this church in Ephesus, and you can go back to the book of Acts to, to read how that happened. And, and we'll talk about that as we journey through the letter together. But as he founded this church, he pastored it for about three years and then he moved on to start some other churches, but they stayed in contact. And they would send letters back and forth to one another. And so as Paul is writing this letter to the, to the Ephesians, he's writing to old friends. He's writing to these old friends that he had lived the hard Christian life with. He had walked through difficult days. He had, he had suffered with them and he had rejoiced with them. And all these beautiful things that they did as the church. And, and you'll see the Ephesian church is not the perfect church. But what Paul does is he gives this beautiful vision for what the church could be. More than any other letter in the New Testament, Paul gives this vision of what God sees his people could be. And what's amazing is right off the bat, what Paul emphasizes is not what we do as the church, but what God does for the church. It's this emphasis from the very beginning of God's work, not our work. And so I want to look at just three words that Paul uses in this opening to describe God's work for his church. And these three words are blessed, chosen, and beloved. Blessed, chosen, and beloved. So let's look at blessed first. If you're taking notes, number one, blessed. Let's look at verse three. Look at what he says. He opens up this way. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen here. These words open up the, the longest uh, run-on sentence in all of Scripture. Maybe if you've read Ephesians, you've heard this before, or, or maybe you didn't realize it as you're reading it, because in our English translations, they break it up into other sentences. But if you go back to the original Greek manuscript, this sentence is 201 words. I mean, his, his English teacher would have been very, very upset. But Paul doesn't care. He just, he kind of erupts in this praise and, and he just heaps word upon word upon word upon word and he just can't stop. One scholar said it's kind of like a snowball, which I guess makes sense today for Floridians if this is as close as we'll get to snow. But he said it's like a snowball where it's just kind of rolling down the hill and as it rolls down the hill, it's picking up volume and mass and speed and, and it's, it's this sense that you just can't contain it. In fact, scholars are so confused by the language, they think Paul must have stolen it from somewhere. It must be some kind of hymn that the early church used, and, and these are the lyrics for the hymn he's just bringing in to kind of open up the book. And other scholars think that maybe it was actually an early creed that they would use for baptisms when new believers came in. We don't know. They're just guessing. But whatever it is, it's a beautiful piece of literature. It's an incredible testimony of praise to God. And, and this beautiful string of praise begins with this word, blessed. Blessed be God. I mean, it makes sense, right? That you'd begin this long string of praise with God. In the beginning, God. 
Right? All over Scripture, it's God said, God said, God said. It was God who, who initiates. It's God who moves first. And, and so you see this, this incredible scene where nothing was made without God, nothing exists without God, nothing is sustained without God. And then God, this, this blessed God, turns around and he blesses us. Two times in this verse, blessed be God who blessed us. In other words, what God does comes from who God is. He, he is the blessed one. That, that's his character. That's his very nature. And then out of who he is, is what he does in his action. And so the blessing of God has, has its source in the being of God. You catch that? It's, it's who he is. God is he's sharing himself. Every time he blesses us, it's the sharing of himself as the blessed one. This is why Paul can make this radical claim. Listen to what he says. He says, we already, in the past tense, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Imagine that. Paul says, you have everything already. What he's saying is God's blessing is, is the sharing of himself. Have you ever seen that TV show? I don't even know if it's on TV anymore. It's called Deal or No Deal. There's this game show where, uh, you know, it's, it's this contestant. If you've never seen the show, this is how it works. The contestant has, has all these um, briefcases, and, and the briefcases are all up on the, on the wall in front of them, and, and uh, all these people are holding the briefcases, and then they pick one briefcase. And the briefcase that they pick is the one that they're going to now compare to all the others, right? And the game is you have to uh, eliminate all the briefcases and then uh, get the one who has the most money. And there's one briefcase that has a million dollars in it. And they all have different values inside, and, and none of them are open, so you don't know what the value is. And so as you go through and you start to eliminate the cases, they open them up and you see, oh, that one was $50,000, or that one was $100,000, or maybe that one was $5. It goes from a dollar all the way to a million dollars. And if you watch the show, it, it gets intense as, as these uh, bankers who are these you know, random people up in the shadows, they, they call down and they say, okay, we'll make you a deal. And, and they give out a deal. They say something like, you know, we'll give you $100,000 if you walk away right now. And of course, the contested, they, they don't know what's in their case. And so they might have a less than $100,000. They might have more than $100,000. They don't know. And so the whole game is about how much risk are you willing to take? And of course, they bring it all to a question and they say, deal or no deal? And it comes down to this moment and then they say, no deal. And then later on, they open it and their box has like $15 in it. And everyone's like, you fool, right? Because they gave up all this money and they only had $15. Let me ask you this. What if you could have all the blessings of God, but not have God himself? Would you take the deal? I know what you, you should say, right? I mean, it's, it's hard for us to, to even verbalize it. It's hard for us to even consider it. But listen, some of us in this room, that sounds like a good deal. 
You may not be able to say it, but you feel it, you live it, it it's, it's in you. You're like, yes, I know, because I want God to bless my children. I, I want God to bless my finances. I want God to, to bless me at my workplace, in my marriage, in my relationships, whatever it may be. I want his blessing. Right, we, we want his, his provision, not his presence. We want his hand not his heart. But C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. You catch that? He's saying if you have God and you have everything else, you have all of his blessings, you have everything else you've ever desired, and then someone else just has God, you don't have more than them at all. Because if you have God... And Paul is saying this, you have every spiritual blessing. If you have God, you have the one who is the blessing. You have the one who is him, his very self and his being, his nature, the blessing that you crave and desire. And listen, let me bring this back. We've made church about so many things and very few of them are God. Very few of them. And yet the church is first about God. I know that sounds so simple, so elementary, but it's so absent. It's so absent. In every church, in our church, in any church, it's so hard, right? We exist to worship God. We, we gather together to worship God. We scatter out in our life to worship God. And so we as the church, whether we're here in this room or we're somewhere else, we are designed to worship God. That's what the church is for. The church is not for political affiliation. The church is not for... Uh, social status, the, the church is not for uh, behavior modification, it's not for providing spiritual services to people. The church is for God. The church is God's work. This is what we're going to see in Ephesians. The church is God's work for God's worship. That's what it is. And so this God-centeredness is what marks God's church. It's, it's His presence that makes us His people. Right? It's his presence that makes us joyful in all of our pain. It's his presence that makes our hearts sing. It's his presence that makes the difference in our life. And, and the evidence of this presence in our life, this, this God-centeredness, is this hunger in us for God. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 63. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, God, I long for you. Do you hear that? Listen, Strong Tower, this, this is my longing. My heart's longing is that we would be a church that, that seeks after God like that. That we would be a church that, that would say, if, if someone comes along and says, you could have anything else, we would say, no deal. No deal. Because I know what I have. I have in this container, I have what, what Paul says later, the jars of clay inside. We have this treasure. We have this treasure that doesn't compare to anything else. God, we need you. God, we thirst for you. God, we're nothing without you. God, there's no blessing without you. Blessed are you who's blessed us. You see that? 
But now how do we enter into that blessing? This is where Paul goes on next, and he, he uses this next word, chosen. Chosen. If you're taking notes, number two, chosen. Look at verse four and five. He goes on to say this. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now stop there for a second. Paul, he's entering into this mystery, this mystery that theologians have called for the ages, the doctrine of election, right? The doctrine of election, the Bible is, is unashamed about God's choosing. In, the, in a sense, you, you can trace it all throughout the Bible. You go all the way back to the Old Testament and God chooses Abraham. God chooses Israel to be his special people. God chooses the New Testament, all these people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be his global people, the church, right? And so God is choosing all throughout the Bible. And what we see in the scriptures, as you walk through and you see those things, you see that every time God chooses, it was not based on something in the person. He chooses based on what was in him, right? It says here, he says, it was according to the purpose of his own will. It's, it's according to his own pleasure, as it says later. This is who God is. He, out of his own being, he says, I am choosing you. And so this choice is his choice for his purpose, for his pleasure, in his will. And how does that work? It's a mystery. This is what John Stott, theologian and, and a biblical scholar, says. He says, Scripture nowhere dispels the mystery of election. And we should beware of any who try to systematize it too precisely or too rigidly. In fact, John Calvin himself, who, who often gets kind of put in the category of this, this doctrine uh, as kind of the main thing that he talked about, which is actually not really true. He, he talked about tons of other things. Uh, but he himself said about election, he said, this is a doctrine that you should not uh, throw out there, uh, you know, uh, unthinking. You, you shouldn't just talk about it all the time as if this is something that isn't dangerous because people will take this and do wrong things with it. And so, in other words, what he's, what he's alluding to is this idea that you can take the doctrine of election and you treat it like it's a blueprint, where it's, it's uh, you know, you, you want to know all the details and how they line up and how they measure, and, and you want to make sure that you understand what it's going to look like exactly at the end. And, and so you have kind of this blueprint mentality, but that's not at all how the Bible talks about election. The way the Bible talks about election is not primarily the tone of calculation. It's adoration. You catch that? It's not about calculating every nuance and every statement to make sure you fully understand how it all gets put together. It's about adoration. It's about worship. It's this sense that, oh my goodness, I can't imagine that he chose us. That he chose us. Right? It should be wonder and shock and amazement and gratitude. This is the tone of election. And Paul says here, he doesn't even pause to even reflect much on it. He just goes straight to what it was for. What in the world is this for? Paul says it beautifully, that we should be holy and blameless. God chose us, in other words, to transform us. Did you catch that? It's not this purposeless, cold, disconnected choice. Rather, it's, very, it's God's very heart in action. It's his heart being expressed in history. He's saying, I'm choosing you so that uh, you can become what I want you to become. I'm not choosing you because you're holy. I'm choosing you to make you holy. 
I'm choosing you to change you. And then he uses this another word that's incredible. He says, I'm choosing you for adoption. In the ancient Roman world, adoption meant that uh, if you were adopted as a son, you had all the rights and privileges of the father. So everything that the father had, you inherited. And so Paul uses this language for both men and women who, who are in Christ. He says, you all are sons in this, in this cultural understanding of the word. He's saying, not that your, your gender has changed, but your status has changed. He's saying, you are being brought into the family of God, and every single one of you has all the rights and privileges of inheritance. Whatever goes for the Father is now yours. It's yours. I mean, it's this radical transformation that changes everything because God's choosing transforms our living. It transforms our living. Until uh, 1593, uh, believe it or not, the majority of the world thought the solar system was geocentric, meaning that the earth was at the center of the solar system. I know you have a hard time believing that now, 400 plus years later, but the majority of the world thought that the, the solar system revolved and orbited around the earth. And so that means, I mean, the smartest people, Aristotle, Plato, the, the smartest philosophers and, and mathematicians, all these people, they thought that the, the universe, that the solar system revolved around earth until there was a man by the name of Nicholas Copernicus, a, a Polish uh, astrologer who came along and, and he set out to prove mathematically and by his observations that, that it wasn't actually the earth that was at the center of the solar system, but what all of you know from your science classes, the sun is at the center of the, of the solar system, right? What he would call a heliocentric model. And you would think that everyone would say, wow, that makes a ton of sense. But it was not received well. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't imagine it. We've always thought the earth was at the center. And then he had to prove it and prove it and prove it. It had to be proved for years and decades. And then finally people said, okay, you're right. The sun is at the center. And it started what they would call the Copernican Revolution because it made people realize everything has changed. Everything has changed. And the kind of, of, of radical transformation that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians is this kind of revolution where, where God's choosing does something in us. When we realize that the world is not revolving around me, but God is at the center. God is at the center. It transforms us in, in so many ways, but I just want to talk about three real quick for time's sake. First, it creates in us humility, not pride. Right? It creates in us humility, not pride, to realize that I'm not at the center of the universe, but God is at the center of the universe. And let me tell you, honestly, people who, who hear about the doctrine of election or predestination or whatever word from the Bible you want to use, and, and they think that this is going to produce pride in you, don't really understand predestination. I mean, think about it. What could be more humbling than the fact that God before you ever took a breath, before you even had an atom in your body, before anything existed in all the world, God was already working in your life. It has absolutely nothing to do with you. It says before the foundations of the world, He chose you. 
It wasn't because you were great. It wasn't because you were smart. It wasn't because you made a good decision. It wasn't because you grew up in a wonderful family. It was because of God and Him alone. Long before we took a breath, God didn't need me. He wanted me. He wanted me. He chose you when you wouldn't choose Him. He chose you when you were choosing everything but Him. He chose you when you didn't want anything to do with anything that was related to Him. He chose you at your worst. It's humility. The second thing is, it creates holiness, not laziness. Right? God's work that begins in eternity past now continues in us. And the way it continues in us is He puts His Holy Spirit in us. The way he's going to make us holy and blameless is that he literally puts his holy self in us to say, I'm going to work in you. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. And so it it really does. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and, and he begins to expose our sin and he begins to expose our idols and he begins to change our affections and all these things that that transform us. And then he turns around and he says, now you're going to walk out your salvation. You're going to work it out because I've been working in you. So it doesn't make you lazy. It puts the power in you to actually do something because the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And the next thing, lastly, it creates in us boldness, not a coldness. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers and evangelists in history, he said it this way. He said, election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. Think about that. Election sets the soul on fire with enthusiastic delight in God. I mean, if you think election is your ticket to not share the gospel with anybody, again, you don't understand election. What it should do is not say, okay, now I don't have to do anything, but rather, now I realize that God is the one who's doing it all. God is the one who's working in their hearts way before I ever talk to them. God is the one who's ahead of me working in their hearts, in their minds to convince them, to, to talk to them, to, to shape them, to deal with their skepticism, right? It's God who overcomes the barriers. It's God who overcomes their shame and their guilt. It's God who, who I don't have to do all the work. He is the one. And so now, because he is working ahead of me, I'm empowered to simply tell people about Jesus. Do you hear that? I hope you hear that as as freedom. I hope you hear that as empowerment to say, you have the ability to share the gospel with people in your life. Because it's not about you. It's about the one you're pointing them to. You catch that? It's about him. It's about him. And so it sets us on fire for this transformation that happens in in God's choosing, this humility, this holiness, and this boldness. That's the church. Transformed, chosen by God, blessed in him. But then how do we receive that? How do we receive the blessing? How do we receive that transformation? This brings us to the last word, beloved. Beloved. Look at verse 6, what he says. This is incredible. He says, to the praise of God of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I love this. Paul actually uses a different word here in the Greek for blessed this time. 
and, and it's, it's often translated bestowed or, or freely given. And, and it, it's an interesting word. It's actually the same root word in Greek for grace, charis. But it's not a noun, it's a, it's a verb. And, and when it gets turned into a verb, it kind of gets intensified. And so if you look at it, uh, different translations try to wrestle with how do we express that. And I think Eugene Peterson has a great insight here. He says that it has the feeling of being just drenched in grace. I love that. He, he says, you just imagine yourself with the showers of heaven opening up and it just lets loose and, and drenches you in God's grace. That's what the word means. And so Paul is saying, this is what happens. He's, he's, he's blessed us. He's bestowed on us. He's drenched us in grace. How? How does that happen? Look at what he says. He says it four times in just six verses. Paul uses variations of his, his most prized phrase, in Christ. In verse 1, he says, the faithful in Christ Jesus. In verse 3, he says, blessed us in Christ in verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 6, he blessed us in the beloved, right? So four times in six verses, he's using this small preposition, in, 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 in. He's, he's saying, he's speaking to our, our location. In other words, he's saying to the Ephesians, Ephesians, you are in Ephesus. But even more than that, you are in Christ. You are living your life in Lakeland. But even more than that, you are in the beloved. And he says this location, this spiritual location, this union, this entering in, this, this joining your life with Jesus, this is how the transformation happens. In other words, God's love is, is experienced in the beloved. In the beloved. In 2011, there was a couple by the name of Gordon and Norman, or Norma Yeager, who, uh, who made it on the news. And they had been married 72 years. 72 years. And they had just passed holding hands together in the hospital. And it was such a touching story that it made it on to Good Morning America, I think, and a couple other news channels because uh, their daughter was reflecting on what happened in the hospital room. And, and she said they did everything together. Right? They, they lived their whole life doing everything together for 72 years of marriage, even dying together as they held hands in the hospital. And as she reflected on it, she starts to tell the story, and she says that day they were, they were headed to the store, and they never made it. They got into a severe car accident, and uh, the injuries were terrible. They rushed them to the ER, and, and they tried their best to try to help them, but they realized that this older couple, they just weren't going to make it. And so they decided to bring them from their separate rooms into the same room to sit next to each other in their last moments together. And as they nestled up together in these two beds in the same room, they reached across, they held hands, and then uh, shortly after that, the husband, he died, he passed away, and the nurse, she pronounced him dead, and, and the family, of course, they wept and they were grieving. But in that moment, the daughter looks over, she looks over at the monitor and the monitor was still beeping. And, and as it was beeping, she realized through her tears that something seemed off. And so she looked over at the nurse and she said, why is his monitor still beeping? And the nurse looked up and she said, oh, that's, that's incredible. It's actually your mom's hand. The, the monitor is picking up her heartbeat. And she said, wow. She said, wow, mom is, is still living her life through dad. 
I mean, think about that. She was living her life through him. Her, her heartbeat was going through him and it was getting picked up as, as her own life in his life. Listen, the gospel, the gospel isn't about living for Jesus. It's about Jesus living for us. It's about Jesus living for us. The church is God's work. Jesus is this beloved of God. He is the one whom the Father declares over him in his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son for all eternity. The father delights in the son. He looks at the son with full admiration and favor. And when he took on flesh, he delighted even more. His delight continued as he delighted in the one who, who loved the lost. He delighted in him as he, he was patient with the sinful and the foolish. He delighted as he resisted every temptation for us. He delighted in every thought, every word, every action of Jesus. There was nothing but delight because he was his beloved. And when we're found in this beloved, God's monitor picks up Jesus' heartbeat. We're, we're in him. We're, we're united to him. Even though we may be dead in our sins, even though we may be lost in our transgressions, even though we may be corrupt to the core of our hearts, even if our sin scares us to death, Jesus, through the cross, makes an exchange. Jesus makes an exchange that whatever goes for him now goes for us. Whatever his goodness was, it now becomes us. Whatever his life was, now it beats through us. Whatever his love was, it covers us. A lifetime of shame, a, a life full of guilt. His favor fills up all that emptiness. And his beauty makes all our ugliness beautiful. And when we put our faith in Jesus, Paul is saying, you are now in the Beloved. And you become the beloved. You become the favored one. You become the one who's drenched in his grace. Because you're in him. We're in him. That's the wonder of the church. See, look, as we close, I, I want to ask you this. Have, have you lost that wonder? As, as you think about yourself being a part of the church, or, or maybe you've never joined a church and, and you've never put your faith in Jesus, you, you think about that wonder that God would come be, be, uh, be crucified for me so that I can become one with him. That I can have all the blessings, all the privileges, all the status, everything that he offers that I could ever desire in Jesus for someone like me. It should blow your mind. It should radically transform our wonder. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never had that experience before. You've never put your faith in Jesus in a way that has transformed your life. I want to let you know this morning what he says is real simple. He says, come, trust me. Put your trust in me. Stop trusting everything else in your life that can, that can promise you things that are never delivered, but trust in me. And when you unite yourself to me, when you put your faith in me, all that I have will be showered on you. And I will drench you in my grace because you'll become my son. You'll have everything that's mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise. The promise and, and the privilege of being sons who have an inheritance in you. That we have every spiritual blessing 
already in the past, purchased for us, given to us, ready for us to receive. And so, God, I pray as we uh, look through this text in the next coming weeks, as we walk through Ephesians and we catch a vision for what your church really is designed to be, God, may we begin first with you. May church not be about us. May church not be about what we're supposed to do or how we're supposed to uh, act and live. And, but first, may it be about you. May it be your work in us that we didn't deserve, we didn't expect, we didn't initiate, but it was your work before us that created this miracle we call church. This miracle of a body of believers who don't deserve any of your grace. We were running from you, and yet you ran towards us. And so, God, we are grateful, we're amazed, we're in wonder at a love like this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.